Okay, I think we're ready to get started here. We're going to get started. My name is Jay Root. I'm a reporter at the Texas Tribune. Welcome to uh, the sixth annual Texas Tribune Festival and to this, this exciting panel, Texas versus the Feds. This event will last one hour and we'll be taking your questions for the last 15 to 20 minutes or so. Um, please silence your phones, but tweet away with the hashtag TTF. My Twitter handle, by the way, is at ByJRoot. That's at B-Y-J-A-Y-R-O-O-T. Now let me introduce our excellent panelists. Senator Brandon Creighton, Republican of Conroe, represents the uh, Senate District 4 in the Texas Senate. In 2006, he was elected to the Texas House, where he served four terms and where he also chaired the House Republican Caucus. In the Senate, he chairs the Senate Select Committee on Ports. He is a graduate of the University of Texas and the Oklahoma City University Law School. He may represent a lot of newcomers to Texas, but he is an eighth generation Montgomery County resident. That's a long time. It's a long family line there. Mm -hmm. Representative Ina Minjades, Democrat of El Paso, was elected to the Texas House in a special election last year and previously served as assistant DA in Bear County where she prosecuted people charged with crimes against children. Representative Minjades is the daughter of a cafeteria worker and she is the graduate of Notre Dame and St. Mary's Law School in San Antonio. Sorry. Representative Paul Workman, <laughs> Republican of Austin, was first elected to the Texas House in 2010. He's vice chairman of the House Select Committee on State and Federal Power and Responsibility. We'll be talking a lot about that. He has been in the construction business for 40 years and for most of that time as the owner of his company. He is an Aggie, class of 73, go ahead, and a former captain in the U.S. Army <laughs> Reserves. On the end, Representative Armando Wally, Democrat of Houston, is in his fourth term in the Texas House. Like Representative Workman, he serves on the House Select Committee on State and Federal Power and Responsibility. He grew up in Northeast Houston, the oldest of five children, all raised by a single mother. He was the first in his family to get a college education. He is a graduate of the University of, of Houston and fairly recently of the uh, University of Houston School of Law. Folks, as we know, Greg Abbott famously said when he was running for governor but still serving as AG that his job was to, quote, go into the office, sue the federal government, and then go home. The politics of that were pretty excellent, and for the AG, there's a unique role here to play, for sure. Uh, but Senator Creighton, what can you, as a legislator, and I'll ask the same of the others, uh, what can you, as a legislator, do about the federal government, even if you don't like it, other than just supporting what the AG is doing? Well, I think a lot. I think there's a lot to do. And uh, the governor's comments are, uh, you know, are certainly reflective of his tenure as attorney general and he that's the top lawyer for the state of Texas so when the rights of Texas and Texans need to be protected uh, that's the office that stands up and does so so we've seen wins we've seen losses uh, the pendulum shifts back and forth on uh, the balance of federal and state authority as it was by design and uh, I think his comments are just reflective of uh, his efforts to do a good job there and at the end of the day as a policymaker we have to do our best, everyone on this panel, to uh, try to follow uh, our constitutional duty and our district's preferences to do the same. But doesn't the federal government trump the state government pretty much? I mean, what can you as a legislator, how can you roll back the overreach? Well, does the federal government trump the state legislature when uh, General Abbott or General Paxton, uh, who is now our AG, stands up and says no? files a lawsuit, says that's not federal authority, and we win. But, so but as a policymaker, yeah. though, as a policymaker, you well, and the legislature, because I hear a lot of legislators yeah. campaigning on this issue, and I definitely see, we, we have seen lawsuits that were successful, but as a, as a policymaker, what can you do other than pass resolutions that call on the government to do something? Or? Well, a lot of people say, you know, resolution may be toothless. It may be a waste of time. We may have certain other issues that we need to be focusing on, but do we? Uh, what issue doesn't fall under state sovereignty and the authority of Texans to stand up for what's best for Texas? And when I filed that state uh, sovereignty resolution in uh, April of '09. Uh, you, you know, I think there were four states in play on a similar measure. Within seven weeks, there were 37 states in play. And political grass fires have started across this country with much less than that. 
but now we see conservative leadership as a majority in the legislatures across this country in the governor's mansions, and we don't know the outcome of the next presidential election, but uh, state by state, it was our founders' intention for us, all of our states to compete well and for the federal government to follow limited authority and uh, the very few duties that it has uh, under the Constitution, and many might say it, it's not doing a great job there. I don't think that's a partisan comment. I, th I would put this panel in solving problems that the federal government fails to solve every day. I would put these people right here in the forefront of solving every one of those issues before I would allow them to. Representative Minhardt, what, what do you think about the, the role of the legislature vis-a-vis -vis the federal government? Look, we, we come in to represent the interests of our respective districts. Uh, you know, I, I, one of the concerns I have, I don't necessarily uh, agree that a lawsuit is always the way to go. When you look at how much money was spent, uh, 5.9 million in lawsuits when we could use that money for public education, we could use that money to fund uh, medical needs for children with disabilities. Um, you know, we've, we've got to be more proactive in, in talking as legislators, regardless of party, um, and see how we can address uh, maybe some of the concerns we have with the federal government. Well, he, he made a point that, you know, sometimes the state has won. Uh, it, let's take the DACA and DAPA ruling in which the, the state of Texas led the way in, in suing over uh, President Obama's executive order to grant uh, deportation relief to certain people here in the country illegally. The, the, he, he won, the, the, the state of Texas and other states that joined it won. If you had been uh, suing the federal government for something that you cared about, wouldn't, wouldn't you, would you declare, declare that a victory? Uh, a minor victory, uh, it's not over. Uh, I would say that it was a battle that Texas won. They haven't won the war. A lot of what's gonna depend on that particular issue is who wins the next, the, who's our next president. As you know, um, the DACA DAPA was decided uh, at the time without uh, Justice Scalia, so it was a 4-4 tie decision. And as a result of that, um, that tie, um, it was basically the lower court's uh, decision was affirmed. So, you know, if, if Trump wins, um, I am comfortable to say Texas wins the war. Hillary wins, then she can pick her Supreme Court nominee, goes through the confirmation process, and I see DACA DAPA coming back for a second round. Representative Workman, let me ask you about you, your role as a, as a legislator specifically, and not only supporting what the AG does, but what can you as a legislator do to restrict the power of the federal government if that's what you want to do? Well, it, it's pretty clear that the federal government is um, out of control. The, the way it's operating now is not what was envisioned by our founders, and they're in the areas that you know, many of us believe they shouldn't be in it. And so um, what we can do as legislators, a couple of things I think uh, is one, we, we can continue to pass resolutions demanding that the federal government get back in line with the Constitution. And we can also talk to uh, the Texas delegation in the U.S. Congress and make sure that they're very aware of our concerns and our <coughs> desires in terms of of what the federal government is doing. So there, there's some of that. And of course, and I don't know if you want to get off on Article 5 right now, but the Article 5 movement is something that, that can be done um, on a national level to try to rein in the federal well, government. Well, since I did ask you, ask you for something specific, I think that is something specific. Um, we've sort of appointed you in the green room as the, as the expert, you and, and, and Representative Wally, since y'all are both on that committee. Um, give us the one-minute speech here on what the, uh, this, this convention process would be, a, a constitutional convention. Okay. It's, 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 and it's not a constitutional convention. We'll be very clear Excuse about me. that. It's a convention, convention of, of the, the states, states. I'm sorry. to consider amendments. So our founders were concerned uh, in the process of writing the Constitution, they were concerned that the federal government would eva uh, may eventually get out of control. So they added a provision in there in the amendment section, Article 5, which said, or whenever two-thirds of the several states shall make application, uh, then Congress shall call a convention of the states to consider amendments. And so this is a provision that um, has been, it's never been completely successful in terms of being used, but it's gotten close uh, several times and has forced the U.S. Congress to act uh, when they needed to. 
The 17th Amendment was one of those issues. Apportionment was one of them that got very close, and so uh, the uh, Congress took action and amendments were passed as a result of that. So an Article V convention just says that when in, an arc, in, in, a, in today's society, it'd be 34 states, when 34 states all have a, a call for a similar application uh, where the language is similar, then Congress shall call a convention of the states. And at that point, the, all 50 states would get together and they would consider the uh, subject of that call. And if it were successful and they got out, then it would be sent to the states for ratification, in which case 38 states would have to ratify it for it to become uh, part of the Constitution. Representative Wally, do you, do you feel like there's support in this legislature to do something like that? Um, first of all, let me also uh, thank you for the opportunity to, to be on the, uh, on the panel. I, I want to first mention that I do have pocket constitutions for everybody. Uh, and so I have them in this blue bag, so if anybody wants one, they're from the ACLU. But I also have uh, my Cato Institute uh, pocket constitution, so I'm bipartisan. So, uh, and uh, I actually have my Cato Institute one actually tabbed to the article, uh, Section 5 portion of it. Um, and so what, one of the things that, that um, I want to discuss is, is the role of the uh, state government in any perceived overreach of the federal government, you, the community, the audience, and those watching have a stronger say-so than what we do uh, in the legislature because you can vote those people out. That's, that's the part of our system that's so beautiful is, is that uh, you, the people, we, the people, meaning you, uh, those that elect us, you decide who you want in the legislature at the state level and at the federal level. So if you have the mentality to throw the bums out, you can do that. Um, if, if you're satisfied with your member of Congress, you can vote that person in, back in. So for me, there are checks and balance. In my interpretation of our system of federalism, there's a check and balance to that. I agree with Representative Mijares that I think that there's a, these lawsuits, the 40 or some odd lawsuits that uh, both AGs have filed, are, are frivolous lawsuits. Um, they waste a lot of time and energy and effort when we have issues such as public school finance that our current state Supreme Court upheld but said need to be drastically fixed uh, because of the inadequacies. You also have uh, our transportation system that's finally getting where they're getting some funding. Um, you have our, um, our healthcare system uh, that's, a, that's a partnership, uh, Medicaid expansion. It's a partnership between the federal government and the state government. We as state legislators, when we also, we also if you're going to use that argument that the federal government is overreaching, then a lot of our ISDs can make that argument. A lot of our local governments can make that argument to say, look, you pass all these mandates on us and don't fund those uh, 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 don't fund those uh, those provisions for us to implement. Uh, That's a good point. Let's open it up to others on that because you do hear a lot about local control and then yet the legislature comes in and says, no, Denton can't have a fracking ban. And now the legislature is contemplating telling the city of Austin that it can't regulate uh, rideshare companies. So, Senator Creighton, isn't that just the state doing what you complain the federal government's doing? Well, where is it in the Texas Constitution where it says that the state government has very, very succinct, limited powers and all other powers are left to the school districts and the people? I understand the hypocrisy of unfunded mandates, and I'm, not, I'm, I'm against unfunded mandates so at every level of government. <laughs> I, I've actually taken action against those as well, but... Those are two different conversations when we're talking about saving this country. Home rule. Isn't there a home rule provision somewhere? There are a lot of different things to stand on, and that's why we see 40 years of a soap opera called school finance litigation. And you take the headlines from 1991 with four special called sessions on school finance, and you look at the headlines today, they're the same. That's a different conversation than what we're doing here handling today on this panel, in my opinion because the ACLU that provided that constitution, they were for my state sovereignty resolution. So this isn't political. This isn't left and right. 
This is for the future of the country, which Texas is the last stand. But it is, and isn't it's it worth, the question is now though, we're getting going. No, but the, the question is though. The yeah. question is though, is that if you if you criticize the federal government for overreach, don't you have some kind of uh, obligation to explain whether or not um, you're not doing the same thing? I mean, if people do make that complaint, what's your answer? And, and I may not have articulated it well, but I carried a resolution just like I carried the sovereignty resolution saying no more hypocrisy at okay. the state government level for unfunded mandates going down. And that was in 09 and 11. So this is a long history on my end of not standing for any of it. But to me, as we handle so many different issues in the legislature, and I always find it interesting when people say we need to be focusing on some other things, because in my opinion, we don't have time uh, to differentiate between the two. Coach Bear Bryant said, you know, often cause something to happen. Uh, you know, our, uh, Representative Wally said very well, the people have the control, but they also have the expectation. And so when, you know, I'm reminded of a, a Shakespeare quote, which was, uh, I've been wasting time and now time is wasting me. We're here to do these things. We're not here to go to parties, socialize, hang out, enjoy being elected officials, and pass laws that, don't, you know, that, that affect and burden uh, all of the citizens but have nothing to do with us. We're here to make a difference, and then when we don't have a fire for it anymore, turn it over. So th these things on unfunded mandates, I'm very serious about at each level of government, but for sovereignty, it's, for, it's everything for our future, and it's not later on down the road, it's right now. Representative Mihadas, what do you think about the issue of the state telling local governments what to do? And this is a very, very, for myself, representing San Antonio, this is always an issue. Um, you know, city, city council, San Antonio City Council always comes and talks to the representatives, of course, about, about their feelings regarding local control. Um, you know, it's a very fine line. And what I don't like is special interests that may not agree with what has happened on the local level, and then taking, you know, being upset and then finding and shopping uh, state representatives or senators on the state level to overturn that local control. So, you know, it, ca it, it, it can be abused, it has been abused at times, but I believe that there should be a distinction there and we should not be abusing that. Representative Workman, is, is the state just doing what you complain the federal government's doing? Well, so for, first let me remind us that our founders believed that the federal government should have limited and specific powers and the states would have broad and unspecific power. And that's part of the reason that, that we are obligated, I believe, to look into that. So if you take local control issues, so I, I believe there are three reasons why the state might and should um, get involved in local uh, control. So. And, and we've seen this where a municipality will pass an ordinance which affects people outside of their jurisdiction, and they, the, you need to step in there. When they pass an ordinance which interferes with a person's personal liberties, and we've seen that. And when they pass an ordinance which uh, harms our economic freedoms in this state. And so I think there are three real reasons that we can get involved and should get involved in local issues when, when uh, municipalities misbehave. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but part of what the federal government is supposed to do is border security, right? So why is the state spending nearly a billion dollars a year, a, a, a biennium, on border security? Because they're not doing it. Because they're well, failing to do it. And well, it, okay, so but if you it, it use that, where do you, where do you draw the line there? Because there's a lot of things the federal government isn't doing in the wake of I mean, would you be in favor of the state requiring E-Verify for your company or for all the companies in Texas? I personally do not believe that we should have E-Verify, but um, the state had to get involved in border security because uh, the federal government isn't, and it affects the safety of our citizens. Representative Wally, what's your take on that? I vehemently agree, disagree. The federal government has quintupled uh, border security measures. They've increased border patrol agents along the entire, from San Diego to Brownsville, uh, the uh, amount of border security uh, in infrastructure, the amount of border security in personnel, the amount of border security in, in uh, technology, uh, with, uh, with all that infrastructure, we've seen that there's a net negative of migration uh, from uh, uh, 
in our southern border uh, as it relates uh, to folks that are actually coming over. So what that means is, is of, we are deporting more. We're deporting Absolutely. more folks now than what we're that, than what's allegedly coming in through the southern border. So uh, that is what, a what, fact. Uh, actually, what's going on with, with apprehensions? If you look at apprehensions, and if you consider that apprehensions are an indication of how many people are coming here, which some people don't think that, but if you do, um, they have been going down, but what the, the net migration thing you're talking about is Mexicans. What's going up is Central Americans, and a lot of them are, are children, which is interesting because that's, and that's when, true. when you look at border security and the DPS is going down there, in a lot of cases, people are turning themselves in. So Senator Creighton, let me ask you, what, why is, the, is it the state's role to pay for border security if we're not doing a lot of other things, like, for example, the workplace, which the state of Texas has a lot more regulation historically over the workplace, but we're not doing that. We're not going in and requiring companies to make sure that they're not hiring undocumented Im immigrants. Why are we spending so much money on the border but not spending money on policing the workplace? Well, first of all, we've taken major steps on E-Verify with state agencies over the past couple of years, and, and those are significant strides. And, and we have to build on these building blocks as we take steps on policy. It doesn't all happen overnight. Second, on the federal government, there's a few things that the federal government just needs to do, and they need to do it well. They need to make sure that we have currency. They need to make sure the post office works. They need to make sure our border is secure and that we can raise an army and it's, it, and it's, and it's fully functional. You look at these uh, in the pocket constitution that you all will have in a minute. These things are specifically listed out, and if, it's, if they're not done, Texans have a right to stand up for the safety of other Texans. It's in our state constitution. And, we all raise our right hand and, and, uh, and say an oath to protect and defend both of those constitutions when we take office. That's the first thing that we're supposed to do when we get here. We're not supposed to, to spend money if we don't have to. But as of two years ago, unaccompanied minors went from 12,000 in one year to 142,000. Tuberculosis was coming into the country via Texas. Uh, new, new strains of the flu, um, cholera, leprosy. These kids just were, were being used by the cartels to flood our law enforcement so they'd be so busy that we couldn't really do what we needed to do to stop human trafficking, which we all care about, and the influx of guns and drugs coming into this country. So this is serious business. It's, it, I, I, I don't like how it's polarized as some kind of political issue. We have bipartisan sheriffs from South Texas and from the Valley and the border region begging us in the legislature to do something. A about lot this. of them are begging for, for you to give them some money for local law enforcement. Yeah. But Representative Minhatis, yeah. let me ask you this. Um, I've been to the border quite a lot recently. And uh, for example, I know you're not in Starr County, but I was in Starr County. I don't know what's going on in Starr County, but there's a lot of people coming across the border in Starr County. And like I said, a lot of them are, are, are looking for the first person in uniform, including DPS agents. But wouldn't you acknowledge that there are a lot of people coming across the border uh, illegally? There's a lot of dope coming across the border. And that the feds, for, for whatever reason, I mean, you know, you, you can talk about the reasons. We're obviously consuming the drugs. We are employing the people. But the fact is, is that the border, it really is not secure. Would you acknowledge that? Well, and just so you'll know a little bit of my background, I'm, I was born and raised in El Paso, so literally I'm a border girl. My, my parents still reside there. Their house looks at that border fence. Uh, it, the Rio Grande is just feet away from our house. So, you know, I, I've known about the border issues. I grew up with, with those border issues. And, you know, it, it is not, we haven't solved uh, those issues. It'd be very, um, you know, naive of me to say those issues don't exist. They do exist. And yes, we've got, we've got many children coming over from Central Central America, wanting a better life. They're they're escaping persecution, escaping, you know, gangs. You know, so it's not a perfect system. We do need to invest some money in border security. I don't necessarily agree in the amount that we've invested. Um, that was one of the reasons that I did not vote in favor of the budget. Um, but you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say it's, it's, it's the, the border is completely secure. It has its issues, and um, I believe the federal government's addressing them. 
But you know, it has been an issue since I was born, and I was born in 1975. <laughs> so. Well, do you agree that there should be some that we're only talking about how much, and that uh, it's just that it's too much, or you just think the state shouldn't be involved in that at all? Well, um, first of all, you have a. Uh, I didn't grow up along the border, but my grandparents or grandmother lives in in Nuevo Laredo, Tamaulipas, uh, and so we go there. Uh, every summer, uh, spend time with family, and my father still lives in Nuevo Laredo, Tamaulipas. And so for me, um, several things. You have uh, the um, push factors, which are the factors in those home countries, Mexico, but in this particular instance, Central American children that are turning themselves in uh, to law enforcement. Uh, and. One of the other issues, it's, it's, it's very personal for me because I've represented these children uh, twice in the immigration clinic at the University of Houston Law Center. I've heard their stories. I've heard their horror stories of, of being raped, uh, of being abused mm -hmm. on this train called um, La Bestia. Mm -hmm. uh, and you, I know that you've taken a trip down there to Oaxaca and to the border, uh, the southern border of Mexico. Which Central is not America. very secure. And it's and on that side, no. Uh, nobody's going to sit here and say that that part of, the, of Mexico is, is not secure. So for me, it's very personal because I hear their stories. They're fleeing abject poverty. They're fleeing uh, La Mara Salta Trucha, MS-13, that will kill these kids if they, d are not, uh, if they don't comply with the demands of, of, mm -hmm. of these um, Gang members. They've also so, caught some MS-13 members. The, the uh, Border Patrol has caught a, a handful. I mean, I don't, I don't know how many. I've just seen some news releases recently in right. which they've caught this. And, and this, these are bad people. The MS-13 is a very violent, violent gang. They, they chop people up with machetes. It's, yeah. So the question is, again, is does the state have a legitimate role in, I, I know you don't agree with spending $840 million a buy. I voted against it. I know, I know that. Against it. <laughs> but do, would, would you have voted for it if it had been, say, $50 million or $100 million? It should, it, should it be anything? I don't think it's, I don't think it's a, what I would much rather do if we want to uh, talk about crime and border security. It's probably much safer along the border than it is in Houston, Texas. Okay? So I, or any urban county. Mm -hmm. I would much rather spend our resources fighting crime within our own communities and urban counties, being from Harris County, being from Houston, but also the demand for drugs, the demand for uh, narcotics, uh, the, the demand for just this uh, incestual way of, of wanting drugs. I mean, we have an opiate problem. Uh, it, it's a huge problem in our community. We're barely, at the presidential level, are finally recognizing that it's a disease, that these problems are real and that the demand for these drugs are real. And we're complicit in that. The American public is complicit in that. We demand these drugs because we use them so much. Uh, that, that's a very, so that's a very good point. So well, let, me, let me throw it back to, uh, to Representative Workman here. But, but go ahead and say what you want to say. But I also want you to address the issue of should we not, you know, the federal government isn't doing a job on, on handling a lot of things. You know, where, where do you draw the line? Well, I, what, the point I wanted to make is that we need to remember that, that DPS's uh, increased border security is not down there to try to capture that man or woman that's coming across just for a better life. They're down there looking and trying to reduce the criminal element that's coming across. And their focus is on the criminal element. The Border Patrol, the U.S. Federal Border Patrol, is the one that is, is, the one that is responsible for the person coming across just trying to get here illegally. But so that is why I think that the DPS needs to be down there is because of the criminal element. Mm -hmm. Out of the six major cartels yeah. in northern Mexico, five of them have command and control centers inside the state of Texas. Mm -hmm. And we need to work on that. And I don't think we can expect the federal government to do that. I'm going to come to Senator Creighton, but what, where do you draw the line? I mean, why don't we just go ahead and build a wall? The state of Texas, what are we waiting for? Why wait for Donald Trump? Go ahead and build it yourself. Well, we are building a virtual wall. We are doing a lot of things down there to create a virtual wall so that we can, can capture more of these uh, bad guys that are coming across. Go ahead, Senator Craig. When we were down at the command center in Westlaco just a couple of years ago, there were, uh, you know, federal agents were a mile and a half apart without a partner. 
with, and lacked interoperability between their radios with local law enforcement. I mean, it, it, again, whether it's lack of help from the administration or prioritization of dollars or many in Congress that, that aren't uh, representing border areas, they, they don't place these issues as top priority. There were some serious systemic problems across the board. Sheriff's departments need more funding, like you said, for overtime pay, and we've done that with artillery and, and Kevlar and other things, but there's, these cartels, they're afraid of our DPS black and white vehicles. They're not afraid of local sheriff's departments. Now, I know we've spent a lot of time talking about, you know, and we spend a lot of time in this state talking about um, federal overreach and all that, but if you look at, and I, and I went and looked at the LBB figures, and we're taking an awful lot of federal money. So I, I, I want to know how it is that you can justify um, sort of bashing the federal government, and I'm sure in some cases it, it's justified, um, but, and then take billions and billions of dollars. I mean, what, what is the percentage? Is it like 40% of the budget is federal money? So why, why, are, why are we even taking that money? Why don't we just do it ourselves? And then we won't have to worry about the federal overreach. Whose money is it? it it's, well, it's federal taxpayers. Where did it come from? Some of it came from Texas. I guess some of it came we're from a, elsewhere. We're, we're a donor state in so many categories. Everyone in this room should be disgusted. And so can local government handle it better? Uh, it's my opinion that the experts in the legislature and, and on, at other lo levels of government in Texas that we can do it better. And that's why 1115 waivers on health care work. That's why uh, solutions for Medicaid expansion in other states have been approved, yet Texas seems to be a target and told no. Uh, there's just different things uh, across the board from education to the environment. So many different issues where uh, we seem to not be able to get some things across in D.C. for political reasons. What about that, Representative Menhart? Is that the fact that uh, this is, after all, taxpayer money? Why shouldn't Texas get some of it, and why shouldn't we have more say over it? I think at the end of the day, um, you know, we, I, I think we all are in agreement um, that things aren't getting necessarily done in, in D.C., but it's, it's not the Democrats' fault. It's both. It's Democrats, it's Republicans, it's a refusal. <laughs> to work together. And at the end of the day, um, you know, our taxpayers pay their money. And so we need to make sure that we bring back what, what we put in. So guys, if we want to build highways in Texas, let me tell you, we don't have the money. We're depending on state budgets right now, so we go and get federal grants, federal money, to, to build uh, highways to meet the demand of our, of our population growth in Texas. And so, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think it's one-sided. I think uh, it, is, it is gridlock, and it's political gridlock up in D.C. Representative Workman, shouldn't the, shouldn't the federal government be able to tell us a little bit that, you know, if you're going to take the money, that uh, you've got to do certain things with it? Well, again, I go back to the fact that the federal government is involved in areas where they've never contemplated that they would be involved in. And there's a deal called maintenance of effort. And every dollar that comes down here has maintenance of effort associated with it, which means that we have to do certain things in order to continue to get those dollars. Sometimes we have to spend $2 in order to get $1 of federal money coming in. And if, if I had a magic wand, we'd get rid of all of that. And, 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 let, and let's talk about the money. Get rid of all the federal money? We'd get rid of all the federal Strings. money. Strings. Yeah. And it, it's the... We have a $208 billion biennial budget in the state of Texas. The, the federal debt is increasing at $2.4 billion a day. So if you take an annual budget of $104 billion, in 45 days the federal government has borrowed as much as the state of Texas uh, spends in a year. And a lot of those dollars, of that $100 million, are federal dollars associated with Medicaid. Um, so I don't know if we can just continue to do this forever and ever and ever, but at some point, um, you know, there's going to be a day of reckoning. Representative Wally, what about that? There's a, you know, ballooning debt. Are you concerned about that? Uh, what I'm concerned about is, is truthfully, this is a, a you know, a, a living, breathing document, and the founders of this document, if you would transplant th those folks uh, in today's time, they would, they would be very surprised at, at uh, what they see, but I think they would see something that, uh, even though government is inefficient, uh, in the in in this span of history, it it does work, 
And, and the reason it works is because you do have that federal state partnership. At the federal level, even at the state level, if I'm going to, as, as an appropriator, if I'm going to tell, give some resources to Texas Parks and Wildlife to give money or grants to urban parks, which they do, I'm not going to give them Texas Parks and Wildlife that money without any stipulations. You can't do just dole out money willy-nilly and just open up the checkbook and say, how much do you need? You know, and, and we'll pay for that. I mean, you have to have some guidelines. You have to have some stipulations. I, I, I think that's a good point. You know, there was a, a Houston Chronicle report lately uh, about special education in Texas, and it was a pretty troubling report, and it raised a lot of questions about, how, about whether or not the state is a good steward of the special education dollars, um, and they raised a lot of questions about whether or not federal uh, regulations were being violated in the way that money was spent. So my question to you, Senator Creighton, would be, does, does, shouldn't the federal government, I mean, if they're going to spend money on special ed across the 50 states, they're going to want to have some standards so that people don't just blow the money, right? They, they always attempt to have standards and na national education standards. Uh, I think we were the lone holdout for several years and then many states started opting out forming their own policies, and we've done very well <clears throat> based on that. But yes, I mean, as we've made significant strides for autism and other special needs uh, within uh, our public schools over the past few years, we have certainly challenges to face. And I, I think we will be looking at school finance formulas and education reform during this session. And, and that article uh, did not trigger what we will be looking at, but it certainly highlighted it to uh, the rest of Texas because that's on the agenda. And I believe, uh, is Kingwood in your district? Yes. Yeah, so King, the school in Kingwood right, right. was, yeah. uh, was the, one of the schools that was featured as part that's of right. that. Um, I mean, did the state blow it in terms of uh, its responsibility to the federal government in that sense? So again, I know we're calling this Texas versus the feds, but I, I wonder if we shouldn't rename it the feds versus Texas. And, and that's that pendulum shift back and forth. I, I don't think we necessarily need the verses. I just think there's always a, a question among everyone in this audience, as it should be, is, is where is power best placed? And then uh, are we doing uh, our role as policymakers at the state level to stand up for Texans, no matter who they are and, and what political affiliation? So finite dollars for public education, that is just a fact. Yet growing needs is a tremendous uh, reality, and we constantly have to balance that with uh, these types of stories and these, the, the facts of everyday life, and that's why we're in session every two years, is to respond. Representative Mihadis, you know, what, what's your take on this uh, report that came out on the special ed thing and whether or not Texas is living up to its responsibility to the federal government instead of the other way around. I think the one question I had in reading that story or that, that investigative report, how the heck did that go on for so long without the state of Texas or the federal government knowing and catching it? I mean, that, is, that right there, I do not understand how this went on for so long, how a group of unelected officials can set a target rate and, and, and do it you know, under the rug and, and so, you know, on both respects, I think both of us failed. The state did and the federal government in that just, just a little context mm -hmm. here. The Houston Chronicle recently had a, a, just an explosive investigative report about the way we're handling special ed in Texas um, and that basically there was an artificial cap on the number of people that could get in and then parents were having a hard time getting in. 20% of the money comes from the federal government and um, the federal government's not uh, very happy about it. But, you know, now that they've been made aware of it, but again, you know, that sort of uh, feeds into the argument that, that uh, Representative Senator Creighton and Representative Workman are making is that the, the, the federal government, like, isn't really doing its job here. I mean, Representative Wally, what about that? I mean, would you agree that the, the federal government sort of blew it here, that they, they weren't monitoring Texas better than they should have been? Well, first of all, the state of Texas should have been doing their job mm -hmm. to begin with. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Yeah. TEA, the ISDs should have been doing their job from, from the get-go. Mm -hmm. That's that is a fact. Um, are the system? Do the systems need to be tightened? Yes. I mean, I will not sit here and say that the system works perfectly, 
Um, I'm glad that, uh, and that's why the, you have these checks and balances with, with, uh, with the media and the, the free exercise thereof, and, and your ability to get open records requests uh, of us and government, uh, because it's important that you have that ability to, to look into these issues when uh, there is a, there's a failure uh, on, on any part of government. Mm -hmm. uh, and and let me go back to one thing. I, I want to recognize uh, today the Smithsonian um, just opened up the first African-American museum. The president, both presidents, Bush and uh, President Obama commemorated that today. What I find uh, troubling, and, and um, it, it's always uh, bothered me that, that we sense to, we, we, the state of Texas has this uh, infatuation with suing the federal government ever since the president's been elected. And, and I have a problem with that. Uh, and so uh, moving forward, I hope that we move uh, philosophically away from that, where we are more bipartisan, where we are working together to solve these problems, such as this issue. I have a daughter, a daughter, think it would two be sons. better than under if, if Hillary Clinton's elected? Do you think it would slow I, down? Uh, well, uh, we were certainly, from my perspective, try to make things better. Let me, let me, two things on this, on this issue on the special needs children. I have a sister that needed uh, special attention. Uh, as you mentioned in my bio, my, my father was in and out of our lives, so my mom really was the one that uh, carried the household. She didn't graduate high school. Uh, she worked at Church's Chicken when I was in high school, making minimum wage um, while my father was in, was in prison. And my sister needed special help. And we didn't know at the time that she needed this help because she was failing in her classes. And so um, we got her tested and she was able to get her help and I participated in all her arts. Uh, and so this is very, again, these are, these are personal issues for me because I've experienced them. I have a son who had initially had a, a, a speech delay. We had him tested four or five times by a specialist to fi find out if he needed uh, any special help, speech therapy. We got him speech therapy. But that's, I was fortunate that, you know, my wife is, is very good and in, in in, in just a protector of the family and the two boys that we have, one is six and one is three, and we got him help. What really upsets me, and I think it, it would upset, all, it, you know, it would upset all of us on this stage, that why were these kids denied access to vital services? Mm -hmm. And we um, need to fix that, we need to focus on that. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to take questions here in about uh, five minutes, so or three, three to five minutes here. But I, I've got one more thing that I want to uh, get into here, and that is uh, voter ID, um, because uh, the, the state is obviously uh, in, in a uh, legal fight uh, with the federal government over this, um, and um, Texas now pretty much has to roll back uh, its voter right, unless the courts all of a sudden intervene, which it doesn't look like it's going to happen. We're going to lower the uh, voter ID requirements from what they were. But given the history of the South and of Texas uh, being part of the South um, in voter suppression and, and, and all of these um, uh, things that, that went on for years, um, doesn't the federal government have uh, a role in uh, telling the state, you know, setting some kind of boundaries on what the state can and can't do when it comes to who's uh, eligible to vote, who, who can vote. Would you not agree with that, Representative Workman? Oh, you're asking me. I'm yeah, sorry. I didn't sorry. hear you say no. <laughs> um, Well, the notion that the voter ID statute that we passed was to suppress voters is just a false notion. It really is about uh, the integrity of the vote and making sure that every person that votes uh, is the person that they're supposed to be and are eligible to vote. It's that simple. And I support the voter ID. Perhaps there may have been some other IDs that we could have allowed uh, to be used, but I support the voter ID concept and I think we need to have that on the books. Representative Mijares, um, what about that? What, what about the voter ID? You know, the voter ID has always been a controversial issue. Um, and it's personal for me. I, I know my parents, you know, back in the day when they had to pay a poll tax, my grandmother had to pay a poll tax just to vote. So it, it, for me, it's very important to exercise my right to vote and get people the right to vote. And I think about in my, in my personal, in my special election, 
my future mother-in-law. You know, she's got Parkinson's. She's 65 years old. She can barely get around. Um, and her ID was, at the time, like three days expired. She wasn't allowed to vote for me. <laughs> I think that's wrong. I think if you can provide you know, some kind of identification form showing that you're eligible, you should be able to. Senator Creighton, uh, on, on the voter ID issue, do you feel like, um, you know, the, obviously I guess the court uh, overstepped its bounds or, or, or didn't respect Texas, but doesn't, uh, should there be some expectation that, you know, we are making sure that people who are eligible to vote uh, can. Election integrity should be a priority of everyone in this state. And, we, you know, I barely got in this building because I couldn't find my ID. Seriously, I didn't get my, I couldn't check in until I found it. It's good enough for Mexico. It's good enough for Afghanistan. Uh, we have to have it in almost every category uh, to, to be able to function uh, in, in this country uh, with so many different things that whether, you, you know, you name it, getting on an airplane, wherever you're going, uh, all kinds of applications. Identification is crucial. And it, I, again, I don't like the polarization of the issue. I, I think election integrity is, it, it should transcend politics. And I hear from uh, all types of, of diversity uh, that it's very important uh, to our individual citizens. And I feel like as, as a Texan and watching the political trends recently, we have never been more diverse as a state than we are right now in the state of Texas, yet we've never been more conservative in the outcomes of the political decisions that voters are making. And we need to know that when people go cast their vote, that it is actually them. There's been a while I'm let you have the last word on that very quickly and then we're gonna go to questions. Well, instead of, of using the ballot box and it, it, instead <clears throat> of imposing barriers, and you're talking about federal overreach, this is state overreach on the people's ability to vote for the folks that they decide who they wanted to vote for, okay? Instead of putting these barriers in front of them, we should make it easier for them, like same-day voting. Um, and the ability to elect the folks that, that have your interests at heart. Uh, I, I think that these voter restriction um, measures are, are 21st century uh, oppressive ways of, of minimizing the ability of folks to have their right to vote. I mean, why would we, the most democratic thing for us to do is the right to vote. It's so sacred. It is sacred. I agree with that. But why would we put so many barriers to those folks' ability uh, the ability to write to vote. That's one. And there hasn't been these, uh, you know, there's this talk all the time that there's just these rampant folks that are uh, violating the, the voter ID laws or, or the current laws because we make it, we already, it's a, it's a, a state jail felony to impersonate somebody uh, in, in your ability to, write, uh, to uh, vote for somebody uh, or registering to vote. I mean, we already make it very hard to do that. Uh, so it's, it's, for us, we need to have folks be able to vote uh, in, a, in a fair system. Um, and the, again, the state has already been slapped down in this, in, in this, in this area. And I think the fact that you see such a partisan divide on this issue here on this panel and in the legislature, and then you have a federal government getting involved that's why this issue is such a, the issue of federal versus state control over things is such a hot, hot issue. So we're going to go to questions here. Go ahead, you sir, on the front. Uh, uh, a couple things. First of all, Texas is not a governor state. Texas, we've received significantly more funds from the federal government than the Senate um, First, I guess, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to talk about how the federal government has limited Article One powers and that they can only do these limited few things, but, you know, the whole Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, uh, Clause 18, allows the federal government very broad powers, and the 14th Amendment allows the federal government to protect due process rights of all citizens of all states. And, uh, and when we get to uh, the point where we are uh, uh, accusing the federal government of overreach, because they are exercising their 14th Amendment responsibility to protect the due process rights of all citizens to vote and saying 
that the reason we are restricting voting is to protect the uh, integrity of the ballot when we know that there, for all intents and purposes there is no voter fraud. Uh, so what's the that, question? The, the question is how can you justify uh, removing the rights, potentially removing the rights of the 600,000 people in Texas who don't have that kind of, uh, of uh, ID based on the false premise that there is voter fraud? I think we sort of already answered that. Let's go very quickly and restate sort of, you know, just to make sure that we answer the question, but we've kind of already gone over that. Well, in the halls of the Capitol, in my 10 years in the legislature, it has been said by some very smart people on both sides of the political spectrum that it's a half a million vote differential if voter ID fails in Texas. So it's not a myth. And if it is good, you know, we, we modeled the bill after other states that had already had judicial scrutiny. And if we have to go back this session, go in and meet requirements of the court, uh, it's my opinion, we will eventually have election integrity in Texas. Representative Hart, does anyone want to add anything that you... I mean, there's already been... Yeah. The, the, the courts have <clears throat> stated themselves that, that, the, that, the, that the bill had discriminatory intent. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so that that's what the order has stated. So, I mean, I don't know what else to, uh, that's not my opinion, that's what the order states, so. I'd, I'd only add that it, Representative Wally talked about it being a sacred right, which is the very reason that we need to make sure that only those that are eligible to vote uh, are able to do so. And I agree with Representative Wally that if you're eligible, um, it, it shouldn't, you, they couldn't, shouldn't be putting barrier after barrier to make it hard to, to exercise your right this, to vote. This guy over here. Hi, uh, Mr. Representative Daly-Texan. This question is particularly for Senator Creighton and for um, Representative Workman, since you guys have ties to business. Uh, speaking about federal overreach, there's a re recent lawsuit uh, of ours, state AG, along with 20 others, about Obama's overtime rule and its devastation to small businesses and possibly state employment. So I was wondering what you guys thought of how devastating that economic effect would be. It's, very, it's a very recent lawsuit uh, launched by uh, General Paxton. Do you think it's a good idea? Well, I, I, that Texas is involved in the effort? Yes, I do believe it's a good idea that we're involved in, in that litigation. What is your specific question about uh, the overtime litigation? Well, there's a, there's a lot of opinions out there, and I, I think several of us, all four of us, I would imagine, are involved in business because we get paid uh, almost nothing for what we're doing in the legislature. <laughs> but, you know, to impose um, these requirements on business owners is devastating as well. And so the litigation is in place, uh, I would imagine, to make sure that those that are the job creators are, actually have a voice and that this litigation will determine whether or not the feds should have been involved in imposing those requirements or pushing those requirements in the first place. Because if people are terminated from their employment because of these actions at the federal level, they would have never received a raise or overtime pay in the first place. Representative Workman, Businesses can only afford what they can afford. Representative Workman, you're a long-time construction industry. Would this impact your business and are you in favor of the, of the lawsuit? Uh, let me just say, I'm, I'm an unashamed free market representative, and I believe that you need to let the markets work, and I don't think that the government should be involved in the business of setting wages or setting prices. We went through that back in the Carter years, and I just think that uh, the, the market should be allowed to work, and so I support the lawsuit. I hope we can undo what they're trying to do. Representative Wally? Well, I mean, it's a very complex issue. I've studied the issue extensively. Uh, so basically what the uh, Department of Labor uh, and Secretary of Labor did was uh, allow for more protections of uh, folks that are from the range of about $23,000 to about $47,000. So mm -hmm. folks within that range have the ability uh, to receive overtime that they've worked, okay? Mm -hmm. These are folks that have worked a 40-hour week and are asked to work more time, okay? And you're not going to... You're not going to give that person, that person, that person has worked very hard all week, overtime pay? I think it's a travesty that we would uh, suppress folks' ability to earn a living now, okay? 
to earn a living. And, and these, are these are not rich people. These are folks that make $47,000 a year. Okay, now you, you have some exemptions in there for folks that are- um, 47 uh, or less? Or 47 what? or less. Okay. So, so what you have is you have certain employers that will designate Paul Workman as an administrator, or he does administrative executive duties, right? But I'm gonna pay him you know, $40,000 or less than $47,000 and ask him to, and give him the title of an administrator, right? But then I'm asking Paul to work more, more than 40 hours a week? I think Paul would be upset if I asked him to work just because I gave him a title as an administrator or an executive. Hey, Paul, work 40 more, you know, work another, you know, 10 more hours on Friday before, before we pay you. Uh, I think the average person, and this is not a partisan issue. I think the average working class person that's asked to work more than 40 hours a week, making less than $47,000, earns that money. And they need to be paid for it. And that's what this rule does. And I disagree with the lawsuit, another frivolous lawsuit by Ken Paxton. Representative Minhadis. I agree completely with uh, Representative Wale. Um, you know, it's not surprising about the lawsuit. You know, we are a very pro-business state. Uh, but in this instance, you know, we've got to take care of our workers. If, if you work those hours, you're entitled to be reasonably compensated. Back in the back over there. Mr. Creighton, could you elaborate on the 500,000 figure? Were you citing that merely as something that you've heard in hallways just for the fact that you've heard it in hallways, or were you citing it for its actual truth? And please elaborate. You said some differential. I don't know if you mean people who are going to be able to exercise their right to vote or people who are going to vote fraudulently. And I also don't believe that that figure existed before the voter ID bill. So if it's something that's going to happen if the voter ID bill is unconstitutional, why wasn't it also happening in the immediate um, so you know, before? It's, it's, what what, what, yeah, what it's, figure are you referring it's, it's to? It's a great question. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to fact check it and neither can you is the answer. Because uh, you hear what you hear among demographers and, and uh, legislators and people that have tenure, people coming from all over the state uh, that are uh, uh, you know, election officers and officials, and then you just have to discern. Uh, I didn't say I made decisions based on that. I just said, you know, obviously uh, there, are, there is information that we take in in, in our respective duties, and then you, you, you make a judgment call. If there's one example, it's worth the effort. And so uh, it's my opinion that we do need uh, to be able to show an identification if you're gonna, going to be able to go vote and whether or not we need to help someone pay for that ID if it's a burden to them financially, whether or not we need to set up a way for them to be able to lean on transportation to get to the polls. These are all things we debate in public hearings. But I'm, I'm certainly not flippant or callous about my decisions in knowing that uh, some of the poorest communities uh, imaginable are in the country of Mexico, yet they have voter ID and people are able to go and vote. We need to have election integrity, and that's, that was my initial point. Vote differential on outcomes for so what does whether, that mean, whether or not Explain what you mean by people that. would be voting that illegally? Uh, illegally without an ID or showing a light bill or whatever, whatever the case. So that was, happening bef so that was so not happening was before, happen before, but it's going to start ID? happening after. Well, you might have missed that I said I didn't make any decisions based on that. I'm just, I'm I mean, just saying I'm, I'm asking that about heard, the fact that you're reciting that here. It, it, it's fact that I heard it. You think that there were it's a fact that there was, there was 500,000 fraudulent what, votes before what, and they're going to maintain after. What does everyone here make decisions based on? We discern data and, and information that, that is, that you can take it as relevant as you want to take it. The, what I make decisions on is that if it happened once, or it could possibly happen, that we still need to take action on it. So you're, you're pointing out that I've heard that before. It has nothing to do with the fact that we need election integrity. Okay, we're going to move, we, yeah, we're going to move to this, this later. Thank you. Go ahead. Thank you. Uh, but my question on that is, it seems that the Texas lawsuits, especially with HB2 
or with the Voting Rights Act, it seems to be more about suppressing minorities, targeting women in particular, as opposed to defending the state. So would it be possible for y'all to do the power play about defending the state without it being at the expense of minorities and women? I know, I try to be contentious. I, I don't believe that that's the effort that we're talking about. I believe that we're protecting the rights of Texans. So if you, if you say that our suit that we won on the issue of Medicaid expansion under Obamacare was something that targeted minorities or the less privileged, I would answer to you that we can only afford what we can afford and promises from a broke uncle are not something that Texans, when we pass our budget, that we can count on when we set the eligibility for CHIP. Are you familiar with CHIP? We don't know about those promises. We were promised highway funding for years and years, yet the Federal Highway Trust Fund Act continues to be broke. We've lost our federal partner that Kennedy said the day before he was shot, dedicating a turnpike in Delaware. We've lost it. And we, we need that federal partner but we don't have it and we're suffering because of it and we have finite dollars to protect the neediest people in this state, including children and women. So what was the point of the abortion law then defending that? Well, the, the, all these questions come in and they're, they're like long answers and I wanna sh share with the panel my quick answer to that is, I don't believe that in, it in any way infringes upon the rights of anyone to have a safety standard that's good enough at the federal level to be the same safety standard that it, we would impose on surgery centers in Texas. They matched. Yes, they did. Okay. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we're gonna yeah. have to cut it off there. I wish we could Be happy going. to talk to you about it afterwards. <laughs> wish we could keep going. Yeah. I think this is a great panel, a great discussion. Thank you. <laughs> this is, this is